This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Let's talk about a good news story this morning, and it comes to us from London, Ontario. There's a nonprofit there called Big Bike Giveaway. They've been collecting, repairing, and handing out bikes for the last seven years. And given how popular bikes have become during the pandemic, you can figure that they have been pretty busy. In fact, over the years, they have handed out more than 2,000 free bicycles. But now they had a problem. Looked like their work was about to come to an end, but it didn't. Let's find out what happened. Kelly Wong joins us, reporter with 980 CFPL in London. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Sumi. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, tell me about Big Bike Giveaway. What have they been up to? Yeah, for sure. So Big Bike Giveaway is a nonprofit in London that collects, repairs, and gives away hundreds of bicycles for free to Londoners every year. And since 2014, they've collected about 2,000 bikes for free and then diverted almost 100,000 pounds of metal, rubber, and wire from landfills. And they are run by a husband and wife team, Shane and Monica Hodgson. Um, I spoke to Monica this week, and she said that back in mid-April, they hit a bit of a dead end when they lost their main bike storage unit. They asked for community support, and luckily a helping hand reached out and offered it. Okay, that's pretty nice. But I was thinking that during the pandemic, like they, they must just be inundated with people who want bikes because we know that sales of bikes, right, and, and bike stores have been just jam-packed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, COVID-19 has been difficult for them as well. And over the past few years, they've given about 500 bikes for free every year. So this year, it's been pretty much the same. And when they hit this dead end where they lost their main bike storage unit, um, it was very difficult. Okay, so did they, they put the call out to the community, and what was the response? Did like a lot of people want to help out? They put the call out to the community um, a few days ago, a few weeks ago, and someone named Shmuel Farhi, he is the founder of Farhi Coding Corporation, which is a property management company in London. They uh, reached out to Monica and Shane, and he said that they have a facility in downtown London, and it's indoor, it's a heated facility, and that they were willing to give that to them as their main storage space. Like just give it to them so it's going to be just donated? Yes, absolutely. So Shmuel Farhi spoke with one of our talk show hosts, 980 CFTL's Jess Brady on Let's Talk London, and he said that he was so thankful to be able to support them. So he said that they're going to pay for the property taxes, utilities, maintenance, and they're going to charge them no rent, and they can have the space for as long as they need. Um, Kelly, this sounds like a remarkable offer, doesn't it? It is absolutely incredible. Okay. How did, so this couple, where do they find the bicycles? Like, how does this whole thing work? Is this, and do they just kind of start doing this? Yes, they kind of do. They collect donations from community partners. They also partner with the City of London and a few other community partners as well. This year, they expect around 700 bikes to be donated, and they hope to hand out five to 600 bikes to Londoners this summer. That is amazing. Okay, so there's been no break then in what they do. They've got this new storage facility, and they're just going to keep on doing this? They're just going to keep on doing this. This new storage unit is 10,000 square feet. And Monica says that this can hold about 1,000 bikes, which is twice as many as the previous storage unit could hold. They said that they're so lucky for this. They have a lot of growth room and that they can't wait. Wow, that's a great story. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your time, Simi. I appreciate it. Well, it's a great story. It's Kelly Wong, who is a reporter at 980 CFPL in London, Ontario. Uh, not every day that you hear about generosity, like, yeah, people are generous, which is great, but 
to donate a huge storage unit like that and pay the property taxes and not charge rent or anything like that, just make sure it's all looked after, that is pretty generous. I'm glad they were able to do that. The whole thing with with bikes has been crazy during this pandemic too, hasn't it? Like bike stores, I was reading recently that that's one thing that has not slowed down. The demand for bicycles out there is still crazy busy. This is Mornings with Simi. So Premier John Horgan joined the Linda Steele show yesterday. And the big topic, of course, has to do with travel restrictions or maybe more like the confusion around the travel restrictions. Remember, the Premier is the person who brought this up more than a week ago. And then it seemed like as the week went by, there was a little more clarification about this, a little more explanation about this. And Minister Mike Farnworth had to keep saying, no, no, that's not what we're doing. We're doing this instead. So when asked about whether or not this whole thing was just too confusing for British Columbians, this is what the Premier had to say. So the confusion was not anything other than people get ready for this because it's coming. On Friday, Minister Farnworth announced that we were going to break into three areas where normally we have five. Uh, We have a Fraser Health and a Vancouver Health, which for all sense and purposes is the lower mainland. That's how people think about where they live. Uh, the island, and then the rest of BC, Interior and Northern Health. Uh, so we, we broadcast it on Monday. We announced it on Friday. And at that time, Minister Farmer said we were going to continue to work uh, with law enforcement to get the uh, enforcement part correct. And, that, and that's where we're at. And, and I have to say that although I, I do agree with you that there's frustration about these orders, the public got it pretty quickly. Uh, we saw a, a steep decline in ferry traffic. And we have reports from uh, jurisdictions outside of the Lower Mainland that they're taking steps to reduce bookings for people who are not from the community. And I I think so far, so good. Uh, We've got a couple more weeks to go. Uh, Immunizations are up to 36% of the population's had a first shot. And uh, when are we going to get back to normal? As soon as possible, is my hope. Okay, but what about people traveling for non-essential reasons? The Premier said he is optimistic that people will use their best judgment about when to decide to leave their homes. Well, it's not. Uh, and I think that the common sense of the good people of BC has got us this far uh, with pretty good results. And I'm confident over the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue to see people using their best judgments uh, and exercising their discretion and uh, caring for themselves, their family and, and their neighbours. And that's all we've been asking. Uh, and inter uh, region travel. I hear I live on Vancouver Island. Are there going to be people that are going to go up to Malahat to Nanaimo? Uh, probably. Uh, but uh, the case counts here are lower than they are in Fraser Health and, and, uh, and Coastal Health. And so, again, we're encouraging people to stay as close to home as is practical. And uh, we're not, this isn't about uh, being punitive, Linda. This is about giving people the direction and guidance they appear to be asking for. Uh, the overwhelming majority of the population are saying about time rather than why are you doing this. All right, so that's Premier John Horgan speaking on the Linda Steele Show yesterday. And what about when this is all going to end? That's a big question here too, right? Right now it seems like we're all aiming for the May, the Victoria Day long weekend. That seems to be the, the, the goal that we all have in mind. So what did the Premier have to say about that? Yeah, absolutely. They're sunsetted. That, they, they, uh, they will expire on the 25th of May. We, if we have to bring them back, we will. Uh, but uh, based on the early, early indications, numbers are flattening. Uh, the case counts are lower. Hospitalization is the big challenge. And this goes again, Linda, to, uh, I mean, the, the countless British Columbians who know the sacrifices that healthcare workers are making every single day. 
and they look at their neighbor loading up the Winnebago to decide to go to the Bower and Lakes for reasons only known to them. And they're saying, what are you thinking, man? Would it kill you to stay put for another four weeks? You're retired. You don't have to go to work. Uh, Why don't you hang at home, uh, cut the grass one more time, do some gardening, and then when we can, let's get back into normal. And that's what the vast majority of people are saying. Okay, that's Premier John Horgan. He was speaking on the Linda Steele show yesterday afternoon. Is that what the majority of people are saying? I do wonder, like, is the message getting through to people about recreational travel? My theory has always been, and I've talked to Vaughn Palmer about this, and we'll be talking to Vaughn coming up in about uh, 10 minutes' time too. My theory has always been that this government prefers to announce that they're going to get tough, but then don't actually get tough, hoping that the announcement is enough to make people wake up, pay attention, listen, and follow the rules. And I think this is another classic example of that. They've talked about this so much about, oh, we're going to crack down on people with recreational travel, that I think many people probably did get the message. And they're not going to travel. They are going to hold off. And we'll see what happens. The question is, what about the people who are not? It just makes the rest of us crazy when we think, listen, we've heard this over and over and over again. Why is somebody loading up their camper and going camping when they have been clearly told, listen, we need you to not do that for a couple of weeks? Uh, And the reason why, of course, are our numbers, not just the number of positive cases, but I think really important is the number of hospitalizations, which remains really high and is a strain on the system. I hate hearing that they have to cancel surgeries of any kind because those surgeries, I know they technically call them elective. They're not elective. Nobody chooses to have surgery. You're having surgery because you need to have it. So to have it canceled after you've already waited so long, it's you know hopefully it's going to relieve you of pain. It's something you need to have done. And then to have it canceled because of the COVID-19 situation be incredibly frustrating. So on top of that, seeing people break the rules and doing things they're not supposed to, yeah, that would drive people crazy. So until the restrictions end, though, you just they have to be so careful about what's going on in our hospitals. And I know this has impacted a lot of people's plans. Perhaps you've canceled a camping trip you were planning to take. I mean, Victoria Day long weekend is generally everybody heads out of town, right? Usually pretty empty in the city because people are heading out uh, for the first kind of official long weekend of the nice weather. So you tell me, have you canceled plans? Do you know of people who've canceled plans? Or is it the opposite? Do you know of people who are just going ahead and doing what they want to do anyway? This is Mornings with Simi. So the Society of BC Veterinarians says the pandemic has really increased the demand for vet services. And it has happened so rapidly that the industry is now in a crisis. Just two years ago, the society wanted to look into predicted labor shortages. They thought there would be a shortage of about 500 veterinarians in this province by 2024. But that has really been moved forward because so many people got pets during the pandemic. So now we are in a bit of a crisis situation. So joining us to talk more about this is Dr. Hatley McMicking, General Manager of Veterinary Services for the BC SPCA. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How busy are veterinarians these days, do you think? <laughs> uh, incredibly busy. You know, we're in the pandemic, not quite sure what would happen because we had, um, for a couple months, really a moratorium on essential uh, procedures. We could only do emergency things. We couldn't do any wellness. And so we thought we might see things slow down. 
And it's been quite the opposite. Everybody is booked well in advance, and all of our clinics across the province we're booking right now into the end of summer for regular stays and neuters and for dentistry. So people are definitely busy. <laughs> Till the, so they're booking into appointment right now. We'll get you in at the end of summer? Yes. So right now for our stays and neuters, because that's a big focus of what the FTCA is working on, we have our clinics in the northern provinces that are booking into the end of July and August right now. And we have our clinics in the lower mainland that are also booking for stays and neuters right now in July. So that's how far the backlog is right now in terms of getting pets seen. So what does that mean, do you think, Dr. McMicking, for the health of our pets? You know, the biggest challenge that we're facing, of course, is that people can't get into veterinarians, into veterinary hospitals. And one of the things that's been quite different with the pandemic, as I mentioned, we were able to do sort of those preventative and wellness procedures for a few months at the start. And that meant that even though animals that weren't having emergencies, we weren't looking at those things that need to be treated to have them not become emergencies. And so now that's what's happening for many animals, is they can't get in for their basic wellness appointments. And so we aren't making sure we're preventing major things from becoming a big, a big event. And so pets now are being seen for more serious emergencies that potentially could have been addressed as a non-emergency a few weeks prior. Right. Okay. So what, what do you think we need to do here? Like, how, you can't just, like, train up more veterinarians. Like, how long does that take? Well, and, that, and that's exactly it. Unfortunately, we are going to be in this challenge for a little bit longer than we would like because the solutions are more long-term. And that's why we've been uh, saying that government needs to help fund these additional seats that we could have at WCVN. Now, as we just said, if we were to get those seats right now, that doesn't mean we have people graduating and returning back to us for four years. So in the interim, we also need to be looking at strategies for how do we recruit and attract veterinarians from other provinces to also come work here. I will say that um, in the recruiting that I've been doing in the past year, we've hired one vet from B.C., and we've recruited three from out of province. And that is simply just because vets in D.C. are in their jobs currently. We need to be bringing people from out of province to meet the demand. So where do we train veterinarians right now? Like how many graduate in a year? So the number of graduates, unfortunately, I cannot tell you off the top of my head. But what I can say is we only have five, five veterinary colleges uh, in Canada. And that is where we also face a big challenge is we don't have our own uh, veterinary teaching facility in BC. And so for a BC resident to have to go to school, they actually need to be a resident of some of these other provinces. Many actually choose to move to Saskatchewan for a year or two, so they'll qualify to go to that school there. Or they have to get lucky enough to have one of these very few spots that are reserved, and there aren't just enough to meet our demands that we need, so we need more. It, do you mean, like, should BC have its own veterinary college then? I mean, that, of course, would be a lovely solution, uh, but that is definitely more of a 10- to 15-year plan. Uh, I will say I went to the new school that was, one of, one of the newer ones in the last sort of 20 years or so. And uh, there were a lot of uphill battles that you have to go to not only establish a, a qualified veterinary school, but really to reduce that quality of education that then brings veterinarians that we want in our hospitals and clinics. So what do you recommend people do then, document making? If they've got a pet, and a lot of people are new, right, to pet ownership in the last year, uh, you want to make sure that they still look after that pet. What can they do if they can't get in to see a veterinarian? The most important thing that people can do right now, and I will say one of the benefits is that people are home with their pets during the pandemic, is that if you see something that's a little bit off, call your veterinarian sooner than later. You may need to have to book an appointment two to three weeks in advance. And 
if you need to, that's the best thing to do. The worst thing that you can do is to wait and say, well, we'll see how it looks in a few weeks, and then maybe we'll call the vet then. And often what's happening is our really lovely value clients that we have are calling us the day of, and we're already overbooked with other appointments and emergencies. And in order for us to now see that client, we'd have to decrease the value and the quality of care that we're providing to everybody else in the hospital. And we don't want to turn that client away, but had we been able to maybe plan a few weeks before and ahead in advance, we could have actually fit them in and been able to see them or prevent something becoming more major. So it's really important right now that people are being aware of what's going on with their animals and also establishing that relationship with their veterinarian and veterinary practice that they have so that when something does come up, there's already an open line of communication. So essentially make that appointment, and if you don't need it in a couple of weeks, you can always cancel it. You know, that, that's very, very true. Uh, many years before, we used to say, call us the day of, even the day before, and we can get you in, and now that's not the case. Really what happens now is if somebody calls the day before and has to cancel, I've got such a long waiting list of spots that I can fill with, we don't have a problem keeping our schedule full at all. Okay, well, that's good advice. I have a feeling you're going to be busy for a while to come. So thank you for joining us this morning. Oh, of course. Thank you. That is Dr. Hatley McMakin, General Manager of Veterinary Services for the BCSPCA. So months in advance for just some general kind of pet maintenance if your pet needs to go see a vet. Uh, that's what they're talking about. Some appointments being booked into the end of summer at this point. If you have an emergency situation, even then you're probably waiting a couple of weeks. Now, if you've had experience with this, let me know, simi at cknw.com. But clearly so many people have pets. This is what we're going to have to be dealing with for the next little while. So yeah, let me know uh, what's going on with your pet. If you've had any problems with this, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, this is the week that Strathcona Park is supposed to be cleared of all tents and structures. More importantly, the week that people who have camped there are finally housed. The deadline is April 30th, so let's find out how it's been going. Attorney General and Minister Responsible for Housing, David Eby, joins us now. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So how is it going there? Uh, well, uh, I guess. I mean, as well as can be expected for an encampment, there was a fire uh, yesterday afternoon, so... The challenges remain, but in terms of getting people inside, uh, well, uh, there were 47 people moved inside yesterday. There were 25 people moved inside the day before. There were 29 uh, moved inside over the weekend. So there's a steady and increasing flow of people into housing. And we're currently on track uh, in our partnership with the city and the park board and the nonprofits and the folks on the site to get folks inside by the end of the month. Okay, and what is the process like? I understand there's a lot of support there, right? You don't want anybody to feel like they're being forced to do something here. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's such a delicate balance. And the happy news is that the uh, folks at the site have been working with outreach workers now for um, months, and they've been uh, filling out applications for housing, and there's an increasing uh, a number of, uh, of uh, folks who have been identified that uh, need different supports that are going to be provided to them and accommodated in relation to their housing. Uh, our hope is, and, and the way things have been going, um, is that folks are going to voluntarily move inside. Um, and uh, and uh, that's, that's what all our work is really focused on at this point. Okay, so are you concerned, though, that there might be people at the end of the day who don't want to move inside? Yeah, you know, I mean, we're we're hoping for the the best, but we're preparing for that possibility that there are folks who just um, 
for one reason or another are not prepared to go inside and there's no uh, way and there's really no desire uh, to force people uh, to do something that they don't want to do in terms of housing. Um, but the challenge is going to be that they're not going to be allowed to stay at Strathcona Park. Um, the park board um, is prepared under our memorandum of understanding to seek an injunction um, uh, to uh, ensure that the park returns to its intended purpose, which is a park. And folks who want to continue living outside can take that option, but they uh, will be under the rule that uh, that if they are in a park, it can only be overnight and they're going to have to take down their tents in the morning. Um, and uh, otherwise, they're not allowed to stay in the parks and Strathcona Park will be closed for remediation, um, the site where uh, the encampment is currently. Um, so what we're trying to do is give people much better options than staying in parks and, and for the vast majority and, and hopefully everybody. Um, they're seeing that we have uh, accepted uh, offers of housing and offers of housing out to, uh, I believe, if not uh, by the end of today, um, certainly by tomorrow, offers out of housing to everybody at the park. Right. I think one of the concerns, though, was that, you know, when this happened at Oppenheimer, um, you know, we went through this whole process, but it was like the very next day people just picked up and moved to Strathcona Park. What measures are being put in place to make sure this doesn't now happen at another park? Yeah, that's a really good question. So uh, a couple pieces to that. One is that for the folks who are at Oppenheimer Park and also in Victoria at the Topaz and Pandora encampments, we've got 80 to 90 percent of the people who are housed out of those encampments. They're still housed, but there were about 10 percent of the folks who failed out of the housing for one reason or another. And um, and that's you know a challenge that the provincial government is taking on in terms of additional supports and complex care uh, housing uh, that we're going to be rolling out. But uh, in terms of uh, the protest uh, movement uh, and, the, and the desire that some folks have to set up these encampments in the city, um, we signed a memorandum of understanding with the city of Vancouver and the park board that the province would ensure, and I believe we have, uh, spaces available that if there's another encampment, uh, we can assure people on the site that they can come inside, that they have a dignified option to come inside, and that the park board uh, and the city will use the tools that they need to uh, to seek injunctions uh, to ensure that parks are used as parks and that housing is used as housing in the city. Okay, so you're confident then that there are more tools in place to tackle that problem this time? The Park Board has changed their bylaws and they've committed to um, seeking injunctions as long as the province has spaces for people to move inside, which is consistent not just with sort of human dignity and respect for people, but also with uh, what the courts have told us about people's rights. Um, you can't force people uh, out of a park uh, if you don't have a dignified place for them to stay. And so for our part of the province, uh, we believe that we have spaces available to respond to future encampments. And for the Park Sport Park, uh, with that assurance, uh, then they'll uh, be seeking injunctions as necessary. Okay, and where did all the spaces come from? Where is this housing that people are being moved into or given the option of moving into? Well, there's an array of, uh, of housing available. So the province has been uh, buying hotels and uh, SROs. Uh, uh, where there are vacancies so people can move inside. We also have uh, new shelters that are opening at the Army and Navy site on Hastings and on Terminal Avenue behind the train station. Um, And then that's just uh, immediate term housing to get people inside. So the Patricia Hotel and the Ramada are examples of this uh, kind of housing. And then in the medium term, uh, we have uh, a brand new supportive housing opening, hundreds of units across the city of Vancouver. Um, we have additional hotels that the federal government has purchased with the city of Vancouver uh, through the Rapid Response to Homelessness Initiative. Um, and uh, we have uh, additional further shelter spaces that will be opening. So over the next 18 months, we have about 1,000 new units of, uh, of housing of different kinds and different levels of support and different 
to kind of meet people where they're at from shelters all the way through to, to rent gear to income independent rental housing. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about where we're going and, and we have the immediate housing to get people inside and respond to the encampment. So, uh, you know, there will have incidents like the fire last night and, you know, that there's still folks on the site at, at Strathcona and, and, and parks in Victoria. Uh, but we're all moving in the right direction and, um, and getting people inside, getting the dignified shelter inside and, and responding the way we should to a homeless crisis. Okay, so you're hopeful that in the next 18 months we're going to see some real progress, it sounds like. We are. I think, you know, as we come out of the pandemic, the pandemic, you know, people who were couch surfing or staying at their friend's place or, you know, in an SRO or, or otherwise the, the shelters reduced their capacity by 50 percent. And you know, most of the cities in British Columbia and across North America have seen real, very visible impacts in street level homelessness. So it was always low, but it's just so much more visible now. Right. Um, and, uh, and as we come out of that, as the shelters are operating at full capacity again, uh, people have different housing options, and we're also opening hundreds of units and thousands across the province. Uh, I think folks are going to see a real improvement in terms of, uh, of visible, visible poverty and homelessness in our communities, and and, uh, and I'm looking forward to that, that's for sure. Yeah, that's, that would be great if we could all see that. Uh, let me also ask you about your testimony this week at the uh, Cullen Commission into money laundering here. Um, what is your response to some of what you've been hearing from previous people who were in charge, kind of the stories that are coming out. What has been your response to that? Yeah, I have to be really careful in my role as Attorney General uh, around uh, commenting on other people's testimony because it could be seen as trying to influence the commission in one direction or the other, and they're an independent body, and and they were set up that way. And the reason is we want an independent uh, uh, determination of uh, what happened and what decisions were made and, uh, and what we can do in future to prevent this kind of activity. So... Uh, so I'm, uh, it's just not an area that I feel really comfortable talking about this morning. Okay. So, but you did testify that you felt that you were having different conversations when you were in charge of that file, which are not anymore, but different conversations about what you were hearing in terms of money laundering in the casinos. Yeah. Happy to, happy to talk about what I experienced. Um, when I became minister, uh, there was a gap, uh, a fairly significant gap. Uh, between the BC Lottery Corporation's perspective of how uh, the fight against money laundering was going and the regulator, which was the gaming policy enforcement branch's perspective, the regulator thought that we had a serious and ongoing issue with money laundering in the casinos. And based on what they presented to me, I agreed uh, that that was the case. And the presentation I had from the BC Lottery Corporation was, uh, well, there was no discussion uh, of an issue. It was about um, the... Uh, their perspective that things were going quite well um, in the fight against money laundering. And so it was that gap between those two agencies that led me to appoint uh, Peter German to do his initial report and then his findings from the initial report that led to his appointment to do the second report about real estate and luxury cars. Um, and uh, and uh, I'm very grateful for him doing that work and grateful to the commission for, um, for looking at this issue for the province and making recommendations to us. Well, more information to come on that. Listen, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots of discussion in the last few days about Playland because it had been set to open this weekend, albeit uh, distanced, masks, limited entry into Playland itself. But still, that didn't stop a lot of people from raising concerns about it. So that has now changed. Let's talk about what has happened. Joining us now is Laura Balance, spokesperson for the PE and the head of Laura Balance Media Group. Laura, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Simi. Good to talk to you. Yeah, let's find out what happened here. So when is Playland now going to open? 
We'll reopen after the May long weekend. So um, we had intended on opening this Saturday, May 1st. We, our team has been working. Obviously, we have a core group um, of uh, technicians that work on our rides and our park throughout the year. Um, and they were preparing and had been working incredibly hard to get ready for opening on Saturday. Uh, we had an approved plan. We think our plan is very, very solid. In fact, we're very confident in all of the different elements uh, that we put together. It was based on our plan from 2020 um, that, that interestingly received a claim not only here in Canada, but across North America and was used as a model for many other uh, similar venues. So as we um, solidified that plan and worked very, very close with Vancouver Coastal Health in order to ensure that they had a full understanding of what our plan was, uh, a comfort, and that we're, we're ready to, it, I guess, endorse the plan, uh, it would be the right term so that we could reopen. Um, all of that was, was very positive. And because we're classified as a retail business, similar to Capilano Suspension Bridge, Grouse Mountain, Science World, Bouchard Gardens, um, a number of other things, given the fact we were an outdoor facility and that we did have a very strong safety record uh, with with our 2020 COVID plans, the fact that we had hosted in excess of 40,000 people last year and that, that our plan uh, was uh, supported by Vancouver Coastal Health. We were feeling very positive. What became, what changed is concerns that the provincial health office had over the idea that people may travel from outside of their health region to visit Playland. And although we um, did not intend to sell tickets at the gate, that you had to enter your address in order to purchase a ticket online, and that we had done a number of things, ultimately, we know that there potentially might have been workarounds um, for people and the the public health office was nervous that we might have seen some interregional travel. And ultimately, they made the request to us uh, yesterday afternoon um, to to suspend our opening until after the circuit breaker. And so that's what we've done. Right. OK, so what kind of a difference is that going to make for Playland, though? Because I know last year was already a tough year. Uh, it, you know, it's been a very, very tough year. Uh, Simi, you you know us. Uh, you, you know, you and I have talked about the PNE and Playland yeah. uh, for longer than I'd like to admit. <laughs> um, <laughs> considering we're both twenty five, um, <laughs> um, but the truth is, we're the only entity of our kind in the country that does not receive some form of government subsidy. Um, there's been no um, secret about the fact that we have yet to receive any grants um, or assistance. We fought on last year. We put together our drive-through events, which received recognition um, internationally um, for their spirit, their effectiveness, and their ability to bring people together safely. Um, and so, you know, we're we're trying. We we Playland employs about 600 people who won't get to go to work this this week, uh, or you know, this weekend. Um, the, the fair itself and the P&E Corporation employ uh, 9,500 direct and indirect employees. We generate about $180 million a year into the local economy. Um, we, we've always been quiet. Um, you know, the fair is the largest ticketed event in the province. Maybe we don't toot our own horn as much as we should have. And we've always been quietly proud of the fact that we are self-sufficient and return millions of dollars back into this city in direct um, uh, park upgrades and site maintenance annually to the benefit of the taxpayers of Vancouver. 
Right. Do you, but were now you confident? It's dire. Yeah. <laughs> Laura, did you think that, like, were you confident that Playland would have been able to pull this off? Like, what about those concerns? Do you think, yeah, okay, the health officials might have had a point. You might have seen some travel from out of the health region. Well, I can say that approximately, um, well, in excess of 80% of our attendees um, traditionally come from the lower mainland, so that we would have been well within our health region. Simi, I am fully confident, I remain fully confident that Playland could have safely opened, that our protocols were strong, that Vancouver Coastal Health was confident in them, and that we work shoulder to shoulder with them throughout the year, every year. And if they were confident, we were confident. But we understand the concern over the interregional travel. The one thing I will say is, as all the other LICA organizations uh, here in the Lower Mainland and across the province are being allowed to open, it is discouraging that we were the ones singled out and asked to remain closed. Um, because whether it's Capilano Suspension Bridge or Bouchard Gardens, um, or Grouse Mountain, or Cypress, they are all in the same classification, and we believe our plan is exceedingly strong, and we believe that it was the model for many organizations uh, for their plan. So it's discouraging. Our, I believe the PE not only holds, uh, PE and Playland not only hold a special place in the heart, we actually play a key economic role in this, in this region. And I guess our ask now is as the government moves towards the distribution of the anchor attraction uh, funding that was announced in the last budget, we hope that our team, our our thousands of employees, um, both uh, highly skilled trades and first-time workers and youth workers uh, are remembered and that um, for the first time we will receive grant money um, like so many other organizations have. This is a tough time, and I understand people are making very difficult decisions, but we're hopeful that, that we're remembered as, as this process unfolds. Uh, and we are a bit discouraged that we were the only ones singled out mm-hmm. uh, to remain closed. Well, I know we'll be talking to you again, Laura. So listen, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Wonderful. Thank you.